Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. In my wallet is something I was given when I was about 15 years old and still haven't used. It's plastic. And it is a government-issued symbol of the mythological free ride that we Indians are said to have had all these generations. I'm talking about my Indian status card. It's also known as a Certificate of Indian Status. What's my status? Indian. And I'm government certified. I've had the same card for decades. Some people have updated status cards, but I do not. Some people use their status cards for various things, but often I do not. I have mixed feelings about status cards. But let's start at the beginning. Why do we even have Indian status cards? According to a Government of Canada website, in 2020, quote, An Indian status card, formerly known as a Certificate of Indian Status, is an identity document that confirms you are registered as a status Indian under the Indian Act. You need to apply for the card through the Canadian government. As of 2011, eligible grandchildren of women who lost status cards as a result of marrying non-Indian men are able to register and get a status card. End quote. So what is Indian status, and what does the Indian Act have to say about it? The current version of the Indian Act was last settled in 1985, but it is still current in 2020. There are over 100 sections within the Indian Act, each section dealing with a different method and focus of control on Indian lives, especially governance. Remember, the Indian Act is archaic legislation from a heightened British colonial period that has been carried forward in its same basic form, albeit with amendments into the present day. The Indian Act begins with some alphabetized definitions. Quote, In this act, band means a body of Indians, for whose use and benefit in common, lands, the legal title to which is vested in Her Majesty, have been set apart before, on or after September 4, 1951. For whose use and benefit in common, monies are held by Her Majesty, or declared by the Governor and Council to be a band for the purposes of this act. End quote. Already it can be seen that the Indian band, meaning the kin groups that would have signed on to treaties, are declared as subordinates to both Her Majesty and the Governor in Council. Governor in Council refers to the Governor General of Canada, acting on the advice of Cabinet. The Governor in Council, under authority of Section 4 of the Indian Act, could declare the act inapplicable to, quote, any Indians or group or band of Indians, or any reserve or any surrendered lands or any part thereof, and may by proclamation revoke any such declaration. End quote. The definitions continue next with band list. This refers to a list of Indian band members, which is useful in statistics used by politicians and lawmakers to wrangle control of the Indian band as a conglomerate entity. 
Child is defined under the Indian Act, which states, quote, Child includes a legally adopted child and a child adopted in accordance with Indian custom, end quote. This definition harkens back to the earliest incarnations of the Indian Act, which also referred to the Indian way of adopting children. In Anishinaabe culture, all children are precious. There are many stories of non-Aboriginal children being adopted into native tribes all across North America. Indians were not just merciless scalpers and kidnappers, but I digress. After the definition of child comes the definition of common law partner. Quote, In relation to an individual means a person who is cohabiting with the individual in a conjugal relationship, having so cohabited for a period of at least one year. End quote. The Indian Act is already starting to feel invasive, and we're not even done getting through the definitions. Section 4, subsection 2 states, quote, The governor in council may by proclamation declare that this act or any portion thereof, except sections 5 to 14.3, or sections 37 to 41, shall not apply to a any Indians or any group or band of Indians, or b any reserve or any surrendered lands or any part thereof, and may by proclamation revoke any such declaration. End quote. In other words, you have some limited rights, but we can take them away if we want. How's that for democracy, sovereignty, and nation-to-nation -nation governance? So Indian status cards are used to designate some Canadians as Indians under the definition and authority of the Indian Act. How are Indians defined under the Indian Act? The Act defines Indians as follows, quote, Indian means a person who, pursuant to this Act, is registered as an Indian or is entitled to be registered as an Indian. End quote. That's it. In other words, an Indian is an Indian. As an aside, I should mention that the Indian Act also defines what an Indian is not. The Indian Act was only to be applied to Indians. For example, Section 4 states, quote, A reference in this Act to an Indian does not include any person of the race of Aborigines commonly referred to as Inuit. End quote. In a convoluted way, the Indian Act paints a picture of what an Indian is because to be an officially registered Indian, you have to be on the list. And to get on the list, you have to be an Indian. Let me sum up thus far. The Indian Act defines what an Indian is. It defines an Indian as an Indian. The Indian Act also dictates that an Indian band is a body of Indians. The Indian Band is to be governed by the Chief and Council. Are you still with me? Okay. So for the government to control a body of Indians, it needs a list of names. Hence, the Band List. The Band List, spelled B-A-N-D, means a list of persons that is maintained under Section 8 by a band or in the department. Here, the department refers to the Indian Department 
a branch of the Canadian government that has existed since before Canada was officially allowed to become its own country. Now that we have a definition of Indians, and of an Indian band, and a list of those Indians registered to be within that Indian band, there requires to be a means of controlling and accounting for said Indians. This is why there is a band council for the Indian band, and it wouldn't be a complete simulacrum of European monarchical structures if there wasn't a single figure at the top of the pyramid. That's why Indian bands have officially registered chiefs. This chief and council system introduced through the Indian Act sometimes flew in the face of traditional systems of leadership across what is now Canada. Why was it important for the colonial government to create and enforce this system, rather than to leave each indigenous nation to its own manifest destiny, so to speak? It all boils down to land control. Because now that we have a list of names, that is, a band, we can discuss how much land that Indian band is going to be allotted to them by the Great White Father. The Indian Act defines a reserve as, quote, a tract of land, the legal title to which is vested in Her Majesty, that has been set apart by Her Majesty for the use and benefit of a band, end quote. There are exceptions to that rule set out in other sections of the Indian Act that I won't get into here because I'm still focusing on Indian status cards. Sections 5 through 7 of the Indian Act flesh out who can and cannot be registered as an official Indian in the official Indian Band Registry. These sections, 5 through 7, refer to dates when Canadian geopolitics forced changes to be made into the Indian Act back in 1985, 1951, and even earlier in 1920. They each refer back to earlier definitions because all of the subsequent sections are built upon the foundation of a self-evident tautological argument. Indians are Indians. The plastic card in my wallet is a reminder of race-based politics. What benefit does it offer me, an Indian status card? Indians can use their status cards to access government programs focused on indigenous peoples, for instance, healthcare and education services. Money for these services comes from Indian monies, held in trust by the Canadian government within the Consolidated Revenue Fund, which is, quote, the aggregate of all public monies that are on deposit at the credit of the Receiver General, end quote. To put it plainly, Indian money comes from Indian land. Section 61.2 of the Indian Act states, quote, Interest on Indian monies held in the Consolidated Revenue Fund shall be allowed at a rate to be fixed from time to time by the Governor in Council, end quote. And so, ultimately, it's the Canadian government and not the band and council that holds the purse strings on Indian economics, politics, education, and land rights across the northern half of Turtle Island. I've even got the card to prove it. Must be nice, eh? That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.